Alright, here we go. Ooh, I got a lot of reverb there, don't I? I'm in a cave. That's alright. Uh, you guys have heard of uh, Second Law of Thermodynamics, right? You know what that is. You know, in a closed system and everything's burning down, it's running down toward the maximum entropy. That's right. You got it. Okay, you already know. Disorder, right? Everything is heading towards disorder. It all breaks down eventually, right? And that's a physical law. That's that's a true law. That's the way it's always been. That's part of it. Now, in the spiritual realm, um, there can be a parallel to that in a, in a sense, too. Uh, and even among God's people, uh, in a sense that we're constantly fighting uh, against sin. And things tend to, to uh, go towards a maximum state if we are not fighting the spiritual warfare. This entropy can happen spiritually because we live in a spiritual, moral, decadent society and the more that it decays, how much of it can corrupt the church. Uh, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, we definitely uh, see that. If you haven't seen it in Nehemiah, you will see it in this chapter tonight. Unless we constantly wage war, we, we are in the war, unless we wage the war against the flesh, we can tend to become more and more like the degeneracy that uh, surrounds us. Uh, this, this slide is definitely not a recent problem. And, of course, Nehemiah faced it here. And he had taken leave, remember, as a cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, to go to Jerusalem. Goes to Jerusalem and, of course, he led the people to rebuild, rebuild those walls in a quick amount of time. Once the walls were up, God used Nehemiah. And, of course, he had used, uh, used Ezra to lead the people into a a real revival, a spiritual renewal. And in chapter 10, we saw them uh, actually signing or coming with a, a, a spiritual covenant, agreeing to obey God's laws, His Word. Uh, they were excited about it. Uh, it was uh, not only personal, but it was as, as a nation. Their, their corporate worship, everything was uh, reforming. Everything was on, on an upbeat uh, swing. So the climax of this book, really the climax of it, is what we looked at last week, and that was dealing with the dedication. The dedication of the wall, which, you know, of course, that, that proved a lot of things as they physically build it, but it really kicks off uh, the building of their own spiritual lives. It's quite a celebration there in chapter 12. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 43, uh, the people rejoiced because God had given them great joy. They rejoiced because God had given them that joy. <laughs> you know, where, where else can we get joy from? Joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord it belongs to Him. Uh, you know, it would have been a nice book, a really nice book, if it had just ended there, right? <laughs> you know how I, what I mean when I say that facetiously. But, um, you know, chapter 12 would have been one of those kind of things where and they all lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, people are people who are sinful and they will tend to start moving towards disorder if they don't keep fighting, if they don't keep reforming. Semper reformandi. One, two, three. Say it. Always reform. You guys good. We didn't even practice on that. <laughs> Okay, very good. But that's what we have to be doing. I mean, that's a constant thing. Um, real life is found in chapter 13. This is unfortunately what we see more than the chapter 12. Um, we know that Nehemiah returned to Persia. He did 12 years of building the wall, not just building the wall, but building the people. Building a wall was a short amount of time. Building the people is another thing. And so it, how long was the spiritual revival? We don't know. But whenever all this was done for Nehemiah, he had to go back. Had to go back. Uh, if, if he stayed any longer, then they would take him as being maybe a traitor. You know, so it's time to go back, as, as he had promised. But during his absence, uh, permissiveness, a decline set in at uh, at this time after he left. Don't know how long, but I have to say that the Reformation was very short-lived, and they usually are. 
revivals are like when people get all excited, rah, rah, you know, and they really mean it at the time, and then things kind of wane. And that's that's right. That's right. There's the people. They were they were all they were all ready. So, um, but it's it's like today, um, and you know, even though they fought with the enemies, even when they were building the wall, you guys remember that, right? I mean, that was a that was an enemy, uh, enemies all around. And that's why they had to build the wall. But you know, it's really not so much what comes from the outside enemy as it is the inside enemy, which we're talking about the flesh. The flesh is the beachhead. Um, we have the enemies of the world, the devil, and the flesh. But the the flesh is what lets anything else in. It's an inside work, and that's our hardest enemy. That's real. That's reality. Uh, in um, <coughs> chapter 13 tonight, we're going to see spiritual compromise where they had uh, been reforming and changing, they returned to some of their old ways. Nehemiah then returns at the right time. And Nehemiah sees all the permissiveness and the compromise and how rampant it is, how it spread. People had covenanted to stand against all the things that were on the outside of them and all the paganism that could influence them, they, they covenanted. If you, if you remember, they signed a covenant. The leaders did. And the people were saying, yes, we're behind you. Um, Nehemiah comes back. He doesn't shake his head and say, hey, I give up. That's it. I, I come back here and I see this. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going back to Persia. Uh, Nehemiah is strong. And he's going to strongly confront the perpetual problems of this permissiveness uh, that they had and uh, he will take care of it. That's why we call this Semper Reformandi, always reforming. Uh, It has to be. There has to be a reforming always. From one generation to the next, it's always been proven. When you have even reformed theology that comes to this country within a short amount of time, they started losing it and then bringing in some of the other kind of paganistic, I can say paganistic, but um, universalism, those kind of thoughts that came in early in the church in the Puritan times. Um, Quakers. Yeah, the Quakers. All the, that kind of spiritism that, that they had. They, they had to fight all this. All this stuff was happening in New England. We need it every generation. But the thing is, we need it every day. Each and every one of us. We need to be reforming. We can't stay the same. Say, well, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, now you're in trouble. (laughs) And we're in trouble. As soon as we start thinking, we're doing pretty good. But there had been a lot of reforms uh, done in this reforming country. And, of course, there had been usury. People taking advantage of the... People, you know, of course, some of the richer people just uh, doing a, a big job on the poor people, making them poorer. The paganism that that was around there because they had pagans living around. They profaned the Sabbath and uh, all sorts of other things that were going on in their lives. Whatever laws that God had, uh, they were breaking. So they had definitely reformed in in those areas. Um, we have to get rid of the inside. Uh, paganism ourselves. And it comes down to obedience. Obedience is an everything day. Every day thing. And it's to God's law. And so we want to desire that. That's what He puts in our heart. He gives us the Word and we obey it. Well, that uh, kind of sets us up for tonight as we get into chapter 13. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening and thank You for your word, thank you for your truth. We give you glory for that as uh, once again we delve into your precious word that you have spoken. We have it written down and we have the privilege of being able to read it. We have the privilege to be able to understand it via the Holy Spirit and be able to just study it 
and then desire to put it into our lives ourselves. And that is where it does make the impact. Thank you, Lord, for reforming us. Keep reforming us. Keep changing us. Keep uh, it in our hearts that we would fight against sin. And it's a strong war. And yet we know one day it will all end when the King of Kings comes back. Until then, the reality is it's a hard fight. Thank you for being our our general. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's take uh, the first three verses. This is uh, dealing with uh, God's standard of holiness. Of course, when you think of God's holiness, you think of the sinfulness of man. And His standards we are to be aware of as He's a holy God. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. God sets His people apart. Of course, that's one meaning of holiness. To sanctify, to set apart. Um, He started with the nation of Israel. And of course, all of His people, that's what He does. He, he, He makes them holy. First of all, it starts with the Holy God. That's probably the key doctrine that all Christians should first start with. That is the most important because you recognize who God is. His holiness is to be held up in high esteem. What happens is when Nehemiah comes back, he sees that here's what they were to be doing. There was to be a setting apart of them and he comes back just like what missionaries do when they come back to the United States after they've been on the field for a few years and they come back and see how shocked they are at the moral decline that has happened in our nation. So when they return, uh, it's like it was bad enough when I left. I couldn't believe how much worse it got. We have people that move into this country and are surprised how morally uh, deficient and wicked that it is. Uh, and of course, you guys are all familiar with the proverbial frog in in the kettle with the warm water, and it gets hotter, and the frog doesn't recognize it, knows it's a little warm, um, the surroundings, but at the same time, it's not anything that's hurting him at the time, and then, boom, it's too late. Uh, he, he can't jump out before it gets cooked. <laughs> the cooked frog. So. It starts with the Word of God, a reading from the Word. They read aloud from the book of Moses. Before the moral slide set in, the people had actually listened to the Word of God. They heard it read, and it made them aware of God's standards. His law shows how holy He is, doesn't it? All you have to do is look at the law and say His standards are incredible. In fact, they're so incredible that we we can't follow them by ourselves. That's what it demonstrates in the person of Christ, then He is the one who fulfilled the law. And in the person of Christ, then God is satisfied with Christ's work. And uh, that's where we want to be found in Christ. Uh, anyway, God's standard for His holiness is incredible. And here's here's another one of those. No Ammonite or Moabite would be able to enter the, the assembly of Israel. Um, because of the way that they had treated Israel in the wilderness. If you remember that story. Um, of course, you could go back um, back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. 3-5, through five, here's what it said right there, right in the law, uh, Moses' law. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, the prophet, 
But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. I like that sixth verse. Don't seek any of the worldly way of peace or the worldly way of prosperity because we've been given a better way, haven't we? Um, We've been given a blessing. So anyway, we see right there in the law that they're excluded out of that assembly. That's the way it's going to be. Well, they're around there. (laughs) That's some of the enemies. But really, they're, they're friends and they're even related to them, which is quite incredible. You say, is this fair? What kind of God is this? It doesn't sound like He's very fair. That's why they don't like the Old Testament God. And then we say, you know, God owes nothing to anybody. He owes nothing. That's how high and holy He is. They always take that as like, I hate God. Like, who is He to judge? Yeah, they don't like this kind of God, do they? Who is God to judge? Who are you, little man, right? Yeah. I don't know how anybody can deny... Like, like certain Christians who would deny sovereign election of some salvation to deal with. You know, um, I don't know how you can deny it. The Bible clearly teaches, okay, and what we're saying, he picked a nation out of all the other nations to first start with. What about those other nations? That wasn't fair. He didn't have to choose any nation. He could have thrown them all into hell and he would have been perfectly righteous and just doing that. But he, and, and he would be fair. If you really want fair, people say, well, I want fairness. I want justice. And that's the last thing that people want because they will be going straight to hell. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's about, about themselves. It's not about fairness. It's about what I can, what I want, and then... You know, then you get what you want. So who becomes God? <laughs> they become God because they want to tell God what they want what to be done. God doesn't play that game. That's right. So he, he sovereignly chooses right off the bat here in choosing these people uh, and elect people. He, he puts their his love and grace on them, his mercy. Uh, God sovereignly chooses. So we we'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter seven, one through eight. Uh, Again, it uh, tells us here. Here's sovereignty of God here. Chapter seven, one through eight. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you: the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. Should have been those guys, right? They were greater. They they were smarter. They they were bigger people. They were more known. A lot more people. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, you're going to be delivered for, and you're going to defeat them. Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. That's a key one as we look at Nehemiah tonight. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their Asherim, burn their graven images of fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then you get this. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because why, why did God choose them? Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Read on and on with that, but it's amazing. He just picked them out of all the other nations simply because He chose to love them. That was His purpose. He can say, that doesn't make sense. 
No, to humans with their finite minds, it doesn't. But then if you start knowing God's ways, you can say how merciful it is that He would pick a people to use to take the Word of God to to the rest of the world, ultimately. So, gracious. They come from Noah? From Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham? Well, actually, you can go back to... Uh, of course, Adam and Eve, you get the Proto-Evangelium right there. That's the first time we hear uh, really the Gospel, right after sin. Uh, so, you know, of course, they had stories and uh, you know that they could tell and, of course, their children and their children's children has expanded on as um, the news about who God is. And, of course, it, uh, uh, Moses comes along about 1500 B.C., somewhere in that vicinity, we'll say. Um, Abraham uh, would have been around 2000 BC, and that would be the uh, progenitor of, of the race okay. uh, of Israel. And of course, that was after the flood. Right. Uh, so uh, he already had it started there, and of course, out of that came multitudes by this time. So we see down through all those years how God really did keep his covenant with them. Holiness being set apart. God created them to be a holy people and uh, He didn't want them to bring in pagan influences and into their community. And so that's the reason why He didn't accept the pagans in, into their midst. It would corrupt Israel. It only makes sense. I mean, right. that's the principle. You can say, well, yeah, but they could take the good news to these people. Eventually, they they are to go to the world, but to he has to first set them apart, being unlike them in so many ways, and by the foods that they would eat, um, just just the way that they would uh, look, uh, the, their dress. Um, now it, it mentions Balaam here in in our text, um, talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites there. And um, when you when you think of Balaam, he was a prophet for hire. He he knew uh, somewhat of the the true God, and so in the in the prophet sense that he was, he was actually trying to make a prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, <laughs> a prophet for hire, for profit. Uh, he was for the king of Moab, actually to get his people to intermarry with the people of Israel. And pretty soon, Israel would be just like your Moabites following their gods. That's exactly what would happen. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's exactly, you know, Satan uses this in a huge way. Well, the same thing happened with uh, King Solomon. Great King Solomon. Wise Solomon. Great gift of wisdom that he's given. His foreign wives led him into idolatry. At the same time, going into the temple, worshiping the true God in a wrong way, and along with all their uh, idol religions. Um, it's interesting that there was a Moabite, though, by the name of Ruth. And Ruth is found in the genealogy of David and ultimately the Messiah. Did you see how gracious and merciful God is? Those who give up their foreign gods, God brings them into the kingdom that they want Him, that they would turn from their idols and repent. Those who would not give up their foreign gods, they would pollute Israel spiritually. And so that's why God does this. Now, I think that's very fair. I think that's amazing that He would set a people apart so much that that would happen. So, you know, Nehemiah's absence, um, Scripture had been leading them to obedience. Then Satan worms his way in, gets a little bit of a compromise here and a compromise there. Satan doesn't come in there and just come in, you know, changing everything all with a full blast, right? Yeah, right. Guns are blazing. But um, Nehemiah's knowledge of Scripture, and he knows God, he knows Him full well, he sees all the deviations that are going, recognizes them right off the bat. doesn't take him very long at all. And so the only way that we'll detect 
things that are wrong because sometimes we can be the frog in the kettle, but we need to be able to to discern and say, ooh, the surroundings, even though it is out here, it can't come into my life. What can keep us from that? Be steeped in God's Word. That's how we discern. Well, we move to verse 4 through 9, the second part here, the enemy. The enemy is right in the midst. The enemy is in the White House. (laughs) The enemy is in the temple. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Let's um, let's read there, starting at uh, verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, make note of that, being related, the priest related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. I'm sure it's eating him up. What's going on back there? <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's like, they're doing so good right now. They're doing, they're doing good. They're praising God again. You know, they're, they're being great people. I know it. I just know it. He's got my heart. <laughs> I'm sure he'd been praying that way. <laughs> he's got to go back and check out. Remember Paul in our uh, Sunday's message? And Paul was really concerned about the Corinthians. There's good reason. You know, they were in Corinth. Anyway, he, he but he got good news, didn't he? Worked out a little different. Okay. I, I cut right in the middle of the text while I'm reading. Sorry. Um, I came... And I came to Jerusalem, learned about the evil that Eliashim the priest, had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. He's back. And guess what he sees? Evil. This had to be alarming. Elisha, the high priest, had cleared out one large room and probably one or more smaller rooms so that Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, could set up an apartment right there in the temple. Now, if you remember, Tobiah is a mar- is a mocker. We've already seen who this guy is. And so we, you know, we think about how in the world did he get there? He opposed Nehemiah and the people, all the efforts to build that wall. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. You guys want to, want to just scan through this just for a moment? Let's look at his character. What in the world is he doing in the what? Why would anybody be living in the temple? You can't do that. But this guy... Chapter uh, 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. There you have um, Sanballat and Tobiah. These are definitely the enemies. We move to verse 19, same chapter. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So we see it starts there in chapter 4, verse 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, Even what they are building, 
if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. See the, the humor that he's trying to bring forth? He's, he's really mocking them, making fun of them. He thinks he uh, is pretty, pretty smart there, doesn't he? And you see in verse 7 and 8, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. So he was all a part of all of this. He, uh, he had many connections with the Jews. Somehow he persuaded them that he was a good man. They trusted that he was. He had sent threatening letters to them when they were building the wall. How could they ever forget? Look in chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. The enemy is already in the camp. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. This guy is not on our side. He doesn't even like these people. He doesn't like that nation. Some of these political leaders are making it very clear that they do not like this nation anymore. The left wing, they don't like any of the the past that America has. Um, think of the Constitution that we have. They're trying to obliterate that. And... Uh, so, but it's funny how you can actually people will elect the very enemies of this nation. Isn't it incredible? The very backbone of what the nation was built upon and such. Anyway, he uh, he set up a personal residence right in the temple. Nobody can do that. Eliashib the priest does that. Eliashib and Tobiah. What what is going on? How can this happen? Well, why would the priest allow this to to happen, to come in like this? Well, for one thing, they're probably related. Probably through marriage, as it says in verse 4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers, the house of our God being related to Tobiah. Probably marriage. Another factor is, is that Tobiah has a Jewish name. You know what his name meant? Tobiah, Ah, Yah, that's God. God is good. I mean, that's the most fundamental fact, isn't it? What's one of the first prayers that little kids learn? God is great. God is good. So, he uh, he's considered good. He has a Jewish name. This guy must be okay. Um, you know, sometimes it's tough whenever there are people that actually say some right things and, oh, they'll talk about God and they'll talk about Jesus and uh, they'll talk about goodness. They have a lot of good works that they do. And sometimes it's... it's We have strict commandments through the Word of God. And then when people who... Let's say... Let's take something real easy, okay? Let's take... Uh, another religion we'll take we'll take Roman Catholicism how about that we'll take that they claim Christianity they claim Christ and such not picking just on them individually but what do they believe in well thing is if you have relatives and if you have friends and, and you talk with them and you know there's a lot of things that they they do you know you, you can you can be friends with them and everything too but the the fact of the matter is is that you can't ever give away your beliefs and theology and side with their view of theology because it doesn't mix at all matter of fact it's a works based religion matter of fact 
I call it, and yes, I'm going to do that, I'm going to call it a cult. Because it is not based upon justification by faith alone. They will say justification by faith, but not alone. And that was the big cry of the Reformation. That was all it all about. But I see many, 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 uh, a big percentage of Reformed, or uh, I'll say Christians, that would be considered to be Protestants, who see no difference whatsoever between Christianity and Catholicism. And uh, they'll say, well, you know, they have their their way of believing. They get there the same way we do. And the thing is, is we you know, they'll say, well, we need to uh, just be on the areas where we agree and not focus on the disagreements. What? Then let's don't talk about justification by faith. Uh, let's don't talk about a sovereign grace God. It's all by His grace. Uh, they don't believe in those things. And but if you're really friends with people, you know people can. And what's happened? I've I've seen where Protestants have gone right on in and joined the Catholic Church because there was no difference to them anyway. So it really didn't matter. Well, they to me, how committed were they to Scripture when they saw vast differences? We're not talking little difference. We're talking matter of salvation, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's i it's idolatry. It, it is it is very paganistic. Of course, they brought those in as the years have gone by. So anyway, we see uh, there was a compromise in with somebody that was part Jewish. There's a little bit of Jewishness there as he is uh, outwardly a a very wicked person, but they don't pick up on that. They don't remember what he had done, and he is still that way. Nehemiah returns. Gone back to the king. Comes back and discovers this. Very displeased. A temple apartment. Oh, he reprimands the officials. I don't think it takes much imagination picturing him there with a raised voice in the house of God, knowing that the house of God had been forsaken. You know, he was not going to... Uh, put up with this. And he reprimanded them for the Sabbath violations that, that they have. We'll see that in a bit. It's clear he's upset. I think the classic is in 1325, near the end there. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, at first sight of that, if you read that to somebody who uh, was not familiar with the Bible, and you, you would uh, have to do some explaining. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is how serious that Nehemiah is. Now, you know, he contends on when he said he cursed them. We're not talking about using the cuss words and things. We're talking about, you know, there can be a blessing there being cursing. God, yeah, and then God what cursed um, Balaam and 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 the Ammonites and, and such, right? And gave a blessing to the people. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and of course there's there's part of this is in that in that culture as far as their punishment is concerned, and of course that. Pulling out the hair is very possibly the hair out of the beards. If you remember that when Jesus, and you find it in Isaiah uh, 52 and 53, and of course they, they plucked out. Half of the beards of some guys. It can be demeaning and, and very painful. Can you imagine getting those hairs coming out? Somebody take some pliers and start picking out a beard. Jane started to Ouch, ouch. She's out. She's out. No more hair. Oh, she got one side and you get. And then now today she's fucking out my mustache and my beard and I'm like, wait, how? Oh, she knows how to torment you. Fascinating thing there, right? Um, 
I think uh, this guy by the name of Derek Kidner, he wrote a commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. He says that Nehemiah's explosion was as characteristic as Ezra's implosion had been. Both were powerfully effective and both were to find some parallel in our Lord's encounters with evil. The shock treatment by Nehemiah was devastating in the same manner as an assault on the money changers and, of course, Ezra's display of grief. If you remember Jesus and uh, we could we could turn there, but remember when he were, he came into the temple and the money changers and everything that they were doing there, <coughs> taking away the place where there would have been a, a place for prayer for the Gentiles that would come. That's where that was located in the temple. You find that in Matthew 21, John 2. Um, he met the problems head on, and he personally threw Tobias household goods right out of the storerooms. Tobiah, can you imagine whenever he comes back and he sees all these stuff outside and then he walks in further and you know they're, they're cleaning the rooms up and the grain offerings are back in the place where they should be. I'm sure Tobiah must have really reacted off of that <laughs> wondering what the pile of furniture is outside. You know, he said, what's going on here? They're actually just thrown out. I'm sure Nehemiah didn't take the time to stack them up real nice. He opens the door and sees his apartment filled to the ceiling with grain. Uh, boy, can you imagine the expression on his face? This is real. I mean, this is this is one of God's men. This is how serious God is about His holiness and what people can tend to do and start making light of His holiness and what they did with uh, the temple there. Uh, well, I, he he already did this in the temple before, uh, you know. Later on, he comes in and does some more stuff because of um, mixed marriages. So this is pretty heavy duty. He's cleaning house is the way to put it. We could have put that on the outline. That would have been a good title. Matter of fact, can I can I change that? I'll give you credit for it. Put by phone. Well, 10 through 14 is another compromise, and it's dealing with the tithe, or we can say financing. Finances are compromised. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Hmm. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field, and went back to work. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their post. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah the Levites. And in addition of them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to redistribute to the kinsmen. And remember me for this, O my God. He says that quite a bit, especially in this chapter. Do not blot out my loyal deeds which I has said mercy which I had performed for the house of my God and its services house of God is forsaken the problem was connected to the first problem spiritual problems seldom occur where they're, they are isolated they're linked to each other so what was the first problem well the, the guy was in the temple they had an apartment in the temple well what did he do he moved out the grain offerings Levites are not to be taken care of anymore. They've got to go out and work out in the fields now. These, these guys are the ones who help with all the worship and all the offerings. And of course, you have the, uh, the singers and the one who performed the, the service. And, and they're kicked out the place where the, the people are supposed to take care of them. People are withheld their tithes. It's not enough for, enough, I guess you could say, storerooms for the tithes. So the priests had not required the people to bring in their tithes. They weren't distributing it. Yeah. They weren't giving it up. There's no point in bringing it bring in. Bring it in. <laughs> and we, we distribute it. And, and of course, he appointed those distributors. They're the ones he could trust. So I guess the good thing about this, like, as you might have left, gave, uh, gave them time to really sort out the wheat from the weeds. 
to see who was and wasn't reliable, and then when he comes back, he realizes that he needs to do some arranging. <laughs> Right, there are some that are still faithful, yeah. and ones he can. Run. I, I imagine at first, probably, is there anybody here? Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> I've been trying to tell them, but yeah, listen, there's more of them than there are of you. Yeah. You just straighten them out. So glad you're back. <laughs> glad to see you, Nehemiah. Levites got really the, the tax money is what it, it amounted to. That's where the taxes went then to support the, the Levites, the people who led the worship, had everything to do with uh, offerings and sacrifices and so the tithes. Why the Levites go? Huh? Why the, why the Levites? Like, the Levites seem to be like in all the Old Testament seem to be very significant. Yeah, and they're, they're in the uh, what would be the priestly family. You have, because um, um, you think of Aaron, okay. you know, Moses, and a brother Aaron, and then there was uh, Levi. And Levites, then that family all along would be representing that, doing the priest, priestly duties or duties in the temple, is what I mean there. Moses' sons, each three of them, they eventually come to their own like people, like his sons. No, they weren't involved in that. Okay. Um, is that what you mean? Uh, like being the Levites? Like, where did the Levites come from and why are they so important? Like, well, he consecrated these particular people and that's coming from that line. Okay. Um, you think of... Um, yeah, Levi. And from from there on, they would be the ones that would be helping with the duties um, as as it comes to Jesus' time even. You know, you have... Uh, families that are ministering in the temple, they would maybe have one shot in a lifetime because they had so many people. Um, But um, you think of Zechariah, um, John the Baptist's father, and uh, it was his time. It was his lot to be in ministering in there so there were that that line of people Mm -hmm. that extended out served. Like, they were the they ones were, that to be ministering right. there. Okay. Yeah, right. Uh, you wouldn't have anybody from the tribe of Judah, for instance, right. doing that. Now, they would be in the kingly line. Right. So okay. all, all the tribes had their duties to be done. Right, and they were to keep it that way. Right. Okay. Right. Because that would cause... Yeah. Got it. And when you see it, yeah, go ahead. Weren't they not mm-hmm. to own any land and everything? Right. They right. were to right. be dedicated. Exactly. Not, not to credit. drink any wine. Consecrated just to God for service in the temple duties. And they didn't own property either. Yeah, they were. 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 Yeah, they they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, work. That's what they did full time. And that needed to be done. Nehemiah knew how important that was. Well, there they are. They're working out in the fields. <laughs> and, you know, how shocked was he? Oh. And then the law, we, it's it's very well spelled out there. If we had time, I would take you back to Exodus and Leviticus. Um, matter of fact, I might turn there later. I only have a few minutes left here. But that's a good question because that's, that's the whole point that's here and and they they've been learning the law and then all of a sudden they were going back to a very loose kind of beliefs now. Um, now, are we under the law of the tithe today? We're not under that law of the tithe, but in First Corinthians sixteen two it mentions that we're to give as the Lord has prospered us. Have time to turn there you, you want to look at that's what it, it's dealing with giving as as the Lord has prospered us uh, the principle holds true there, there's a spiritual compromise that can happen in in our giving um, and it's not to say well, oh well we don't have to tithe anymore uh, prophet the prophet Malachi Malachi was ministering at this time and in Malachi you get a confrontation with the people for robbing God of not bringing their tithes into the storehouse. Remember that? 
so you'll see that Malachi 3, 8 through 10, it talks about that. And there that's dealing with giving to God, even though that was a sense that they were to give that 10%. But they gave much more than 10%. When it's all said and done, I think they averaged something like 22.5% a year that they gave to um, what amounted to uh, the the people who served God there in, in, in full time as far as the temple is concerned. There were a lot of reasons for that and even uh, helping people out that needed it to, to be. So there were a lot of things happening with those offerings. And now it basically had been stopped for the most part. It's There's no storehouse there. Um, and like I say, it's, for, for our times... Uh, in New Testament giving, you can look at Second Corinthians. We'll be dealing with that sometime in the next few months. In chapter eight, I think chapter nine, especially six through fifteen, and talks about joyous giving, hilarious giving. It talks about just be what a gift it is that God gives us, so that we can give back. We just are just uh, what um, you know, just tools to yes, He gives us, and He gives, we give it back, whatever that may be, as He's prospered. Some he prospers with a lot more, some with a lot less. But the fact of the matter is, we still uh, use that, put it out. And so that was a shame that it happened. Uh, and then Nehemiah says, Remember me, God. As I said, he says that several times here. He said it before. Um, he has been obedient to God. And that's his prayer that here it is, you know, he performed all of this work. And so he shoots up these brief prayers all throughout Nehemiah. We saw him shooting up a prayer even way back in Persia before he'd even gotten there. As he was saying a prayer about the same time as he was talking to the king, and that's how he got the word out of trying, hey, you know, I want to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> God, now's the time. Help me here. Um, he's not a typical politician, is he? We have those elections, had the voting today. He's not running a popularity contest, but he's seeking to please God. And he wants to get people back to holy living. And I say that he has a very Godward focus. He has a high, high view of God. So he's confronting their permissiveness and uh, he has to confront out of love. There's the deal with the Sabbath, which he's dealt with before. And they've had problems with that. I'll read it real quick. We'll just kind of blaze through it as we're reading. I might just interject and I don't know. I may not even finish this week. I I don't know how to, to end this for sure. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre. <laughs> Tyre. The men of Tyre. These are not Jewish people. These guys are pagans. These men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise. I mean, they could supply the people. And they said, this is great. We're getting great food. And they sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. You buy fish, and you don't have, uh, you can't really keep it very long, usually, just like any kind of meats. Ooh, we got to do something today. I know this is the Sabbath, but I don't think the Lord would want us to waste any food. So, you know, Lord, I can't, I can't go to worship today. I have to take care of the fish that's going to die. So the tire guys come and they're the fish guys from Tyre really. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath. Look at that. Adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem, (laughs) boy, just before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. It had to shut them (laughs) because there was trading going on. Those guys were outside, outside the gates, outside the walls, 
and trying to still do their merchandising. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Just as soon as the Sabbath's over, let's get this thing going. (laughs) Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. And he does. (laughs) From that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. (laughs) He caught them out of there. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. It's to be set apart. The gates are to be holy. The walls are to be holy. The food is to be holy. You know, everything is to be holy. The people are especially to be holy. And so he commands them to sanctify this day. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness, of your mercy. So there was a compromise and uh, the people had agreed on the covenant. Remember, they're doing business on that day. Merchants from Tyre. A brisk business selling the fish. The imported fish are coming. Hey, you don't really get this kind of fish all the time. Who knows? You know, a lobster, man, you know, might be bringing that, you know, and some of the, the best kind of fish. And uh, shrimp. I don't know. What kind of fish do they have here? Well, I don't think the the the, uh, the dietary problem would be a problem to them. If they don't have a problem with the Sabbath, they don't have any problem with the foods that God had uh, said you can't have, right? Uh, well, I'll tell you. There were reasons that people were probably doing it. Hey, listen, if I don't tread my grapes that day, they're going to rot. Legitimately, that's what's going to happen. Everyone else is doing business. And if they do business, I can't compete. So I'm going to have to do business. I know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but other people are, so I'm going to have to keep my shop open. All those imported fish, they're just going to rot. They're going to waste. We don't buy them. You know... If we don't buy them, then we're not, but we buy them, and this is what happens. It wouldn't be right to waste all that good food and all the wares that are there. I don't know. It's after eight. Better stop. This has to be one of the worst passages I've ever read. <laughs> because you think about, you know, and I don't want to be all, well, how does this apply to us today? But really, how does it apply to us today? Because... Um, I've been thinking about you know things that I've been finding out that the the prominent face of Christianity that is putting out there uh, like there was this event last like two weeks ago or a week ago uh, in July in the middle of July and it's called Together 2016 and the it was just a a big old worship fest for Jesus and the, the hashtag was Jesus changes everything but the people they had there are your reformed people like Lecrae Trip Lee Francis Chan you know if he's reformed no. Robbie Zacharias was there uh, you have uh, spiritual yeah Louis Giglio you have the spiritual uh, gurus like the uh, you know, women speakers like Ann Voskamp or whoever that is who like who wrote a book that where she's all uh Joyce Myers a, there? a romanticizer of God, you know. And then you have uh Yeah, I think she was there. I think uh you had you had the Pope. Yeah, I was I was getting into that. You ruined. <laughs> and then you got the Pope on top of all. It was sounding pretty good at first. Then. <laughs> no, that's the thing. It's like then it sounds really bad whenever you find out all the wrong people that are there and how all these supposedly right people are partnering. You have Jeremy Camp. You have uh, like like you said Hillsong. You know all these people in Hillsong. You find you look into them and they're just. You know. I don't know about I don't like the musicians you talk about. I've only heard their music. I don't know anything about them as 
as a group? Well, we need to know about it. Yeah. I think that's that's what this is about. Is like you come 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 home to where who you say you're with, you know, and and, and, and being a Christian. Say what is Christianity today? And go now. Who is God? Yesterday, today, and forever. Does this look at all like the face of Christ, the body of Christ? And it really doesn't. It looks like a prostitute. It looks like a harlot. It looks like Babylon. Well, and, and whenever they have those gatherings, it's just a big rally, and then it's over. And well, and I think go home. Yeah, I think they're making money. money. It's, right. it's an enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> they're profiting off of people's emotions. And, and then the supposed revival that they're wanting to work up is only going to last for that day. It even got shortened. They couldn't even last the heat because, you know, and that and some people were like praising God, like, oh, good, it got shut down before <laughs> before it, uh, because it was supposed to go, like, from 9 to 9 throughout the whole day. It went to 9 to 3. So it got cut short. But, you know, there's so much... Where did this take place at? This was Washington, D.C. at the... Uh, at the mall? That. Yeah. And the Pope was there? Well, he was videoed in, I think. Oh. It's kind of like a, uh, a one-day ECT. Evangelical Catholics together oh, okay. is really what it amounted to. Let's all get together. But what that is is old-fashioned ecumenicalism. Even though that it would be nice for the whole church to get together, but they're not agreeing on doctrine. Right. They've got everything from reformed theology to as loose as anything and false as anything. I looked no. into it because uh, um, a lot of friends, of many of my friends from Miami, they went as a church. And uh, honestly, I'm I'm really confused right now as to why why were they there, you know? And some of them are. They don't really care about you know theological things, but some of them are really strong. So I'm kind of like, what's going on? And so um, yeah, another comment that I was gonna make is that I heard this guy on the radio saying that the heat strokes were like <laughs> God, <laughs> God oh, warning yeah. people <laughs> what's yeah. gonna happen. Yeah, it's, well, it, it comes down to it. The holiness. You, you start this out with God is holy. The holiness of God. I think the house of God. It says here, uh, 13, he says, I have, you know, don't erase the good deeds I have done for the house of my God. Everything God is is holy, and anything he's worked on is holy. The, in order to be holy. Um, so the house of God is being profaned, you know, like he says, and that's today. And and then we have to look, you know, we're talking about the Old Testament stuff, and, and we can get bogged down in law and, and, and sort of the temporal laws that God gave. So we need to come, come back to, well, what's the real church look like? How, how, did, how did the early church operate and function? Um, you know, zeal from for this house is consuming me as of late. I've just been so. I get I get what you're saying. Disrupted because uh, I'm seeing I'm seeing all the little cracks right. that can get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then. It starts. It all starts in our own hearts, and then you know, it starts with the, with whatever we let into our homes, and then into the church. What we're selling people, what we're telling people. I had to uh, publicly kind of make myself look like a fool the other day because uh, at work I found on my drawer out of nowhere I found. A uh, little rosary—it wasn't a rosary, but it was like a little icon of Mary that says, uh, "Mary, that Mother of God, Holy, all this." I took that thing. I said, "Who put this here?" And no, nobody knew. And I said, "Okay," and I threw it in the trash. And they went, "What? Why'd you just do that?" And I said, "Because 
this kid's Catholic. <laughs> and it's a it's an icon, you know. It's, they they believe that it's marriage. In China. <laughs> so so they're like, wow, you know. And then and then later, this guy was like, oh, what what'd you do with that? Yeah. I said I threw it away. This guy's like, what? Oh, and you like start looking for it, and I said, what are you doing? Don't waste your time. Uh, and, then, and then somebody was like, somebody's like, so are you a Christian? Or, you know, what are you? And I said, I'm a Christian. And they're like, Catholics are Christian too. I said, whatever. Because I wasn't going to get into that conversation. It would have blew their world apart. Well, you know? not, and what you said then said, not if you put your hope in idols. Right. And right. That's, always, that's really how you generally answer that. Because <laughs> that's been my battle for years. My mother thought I hated Mary. Tell them, read me about Yeah, that. because it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, the Mary thing is like, no, it's not. You, you just kept putting it in the wrong place. You know, 